and welcome to Visiting Fellows, a podcast destined to sharing the knowledge of professionals from different walks of life based on their unique experiences. I am your host, Victoria Solis, and this podcast was produced using Anchor. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. David Godfrey, who is Executive Director of the Sea Turtle Conservancy the world's oldest sea turtle research and conservation group. He holds degrees in communications and business from the University of Florida. He has been involved professionally in environmental conservation for over 30 years and is a member of the World Conservation Union's Marine Turtle Specialist Group. He has led many projects aimed at improving beach management and sea turtle protection policies at the local and international level. During his tenure with SDC, David has spearheaded successful campaigns to protect coastal and marine resources, raise awareness about sea turtles and other wildlife, and inspire financial support for conservation. Lastly, he is chairman of the Sea Turtle Grants Program, which has awarded millions of dollars in financial support for research and education in the United States. Welcome to Visiting Fellows. Um, To begin with, I'd like to know what the story is behind Sea Turtle Conservancy and how does it operate nowadays in terms of geography and its programs? Okay, um, well, the Sea Turtle Conservancy is a a nonprofit organization that's uh, uh, headquartered in the United States uh, with um, operations in Costa Rica and Panama uh, as well as Bermuda. Um, we specialize in the, the study and protection of sea turtles, and our activities range from pure scientific research to um, educational activities to promote awareness about turtles and the threats they face. Uh, we also conduct various types of training uh, to instruct young and aspiring biologists how to work with sea turtles. Uh, we do that particularly through our research assistant program in uh, Tortuguero in Costa Rica. Uh, and we also are involved in policy work so that we um, are trying to affect change uh, in various places in how turtles and their habitats are, um, are protected. Um, And I can expand a little bit on uh, the history of the organization. Um, The Sea Turtle Conservancy was founded in 1959. Um, The the man that sort of um, instigated that was Dr. Archie Carr. Uh, He was a a University of Florida professor and, and a renowned expert on sea turtles who was raising awareness about the plight of these animals through his writings uh, particularly a book called The Windward Road. And that inspired a number of people to come together and uh, work with Dr. Carr to found what would become the first organization in the world dedicated to protecting sea turtles. Um, and that was established in 1959 under the name Caribbean Conservation Corporation. Now today we, we're known as the Sea Turtle Conservancy um, because that name more accurate, accurately reflects what we do. Um, but the organization has a, a, a long history of uh, studying these animals and trying to protect them in some of the most important places where they occur uh, in the world. Uh, Tortuguero, Costa Rica is chief among those, but uh, uh, Florida is also critical to 
the survivor survivorship of a number of species, and so we're, we work in that state as well. Uh, and more recently, we've expanded into Panama with a number of uh, permanent programs to monitor and protect uh, hawksbills and leatherback turtles. Wow, I didn't know it went as far back as 1959, which is amazing, really. So was last year your 60th anniversary? And what kind of people would we find working at Sea Turtle Conservancy and what professions do they have? Is it mostly volunteer based? Yes, the organization uh, Sea Turtle Conservancy celebrated its 60th anniversary in 2019. We were founded in 1959. So uh, last year we celebrated six full decades of work on behalf of these animals, something we're, we're really proud of. Uh, not something you see uh, in, in among other organizations around the world that are focused on turtle conservation. So we're really proud of our, our longevity and all we've been able to accomplish over these last six decades. One of the things that I think has contributed to our longevity is the dedication and, and passion of the people who work for the organization. I personally have been employed by SCC as, as my main job for over 25 years so uh, and i'm not the only person who's been there that long um, a number of uh, the people around uh, around our offices uh, working in our, our field locations have been with us for for many years and including uh, some for a number of decades and our backgrounds range from like myself i, I come from a a background of communications and business I've always wanted to be involved in conservation professionally, so that was my, my chosen field and uh, have just applied those communication skills to, and business skills to the, to the kinds of work that we do. But of course, we also have biologists, uh, we have an, an accountant, or a couple of accountants on staff, there are office support people that, that have business backgrounds and a number of other people in the communications and marketing fields who help us get our messaging out and, and coordinate our social media presence, our website, things like that. But it's a broad mix and we, we certainly do have permanent employees. We also rely on volunteers. The volunteers are, are usually more from the scientific background, young biologists who wanna work at our field locations and get practical experience working hands-on with sea turtles. So it's a, a really diverse mix of both employees, volunteers, and as well as a number of different types of professions that are represented. So I would imagine the, the staff turnover is a lot less frequent than in other types of organizations, just because, like you said, the dedication and passion behind what people do, and it's probably the reason why a lot of them have stayed that long. And of course, I'm sure there, there's a very strong vocation for, for conservation. Um, so to keep talking about the people working at STC, there's definitely an intercultural component in the sense that you're working with teams not only in the United States, but also in Costa Rica and Panama. And there are people from different nationalities in these locations as well. So do you see this more as a need for the organization or is it a benefit? Is it a, is it a challenge to work with such a diverse team? Well, you're right. We definitely have a lot less turnover than you would see in some other types of organizations or companies. I think part of that, in addition to just the, the pure passion of, of the people 
who work for us wanting to be involved in uh, sea turtle conservation or, or just conservation in general is that um, I, I think we all try to make the STC a great place to work. Uh, no matter what the, the business is, I think our environment is accepting of all types of people. We try to have fun, uh, treat each other well. Uh, there are great opportunities to, to travel around to, to different places and, you know, you, you can't help but be, um, you know, uh, happy that you're working with an animal that occurs in some of the most beautiful places in the world. So if you're going to work with, with sea turtles, you're going to be at tropical beaches, you're going to be out on the water, uh, traveling to some really incredible places. So that helps keep people around for sure. And yes, we we have operations in a lot of different locations and um, different types of people who, who uh, work for us come from different countries. And that is uh, uh, a really wonderful thing. You know, you get to meet a lot of people from, uh, from different cultures and uh, utilize their unique expertise and, and outlooks on, on life and about how you do things. Uh, in uh, Tortuguero, for example, over the years, we, we've seen station managers and uh, field coordinators, uh, educational outreach people come from not only Costa Rica and Panama and um, other Central American countries, but uh, from Spain and Australia, England, the U.S., and at any given time, if you're at the station, you will meet people from all of these places. And uh, it's a really uh, dynamic, uh, culturally diverse environment. Um, and I, I think it's, in almost all ways, it, it's a positive. Uh, I really can't think of a, a downside to having uh, all of that diversity. You know, there are some language barriers occasionally but you know when everyone's speaking the language of sea turtles and turtle conservation even if someone is a um primarily a, a, a or solely a spanish speaker and others like myself who kind of struggle to, to fully learn other languages you're still able to communicate and uh, of course i'm always trying to improve my spanish but um uh, those are the only real challenges is just little bits of, of communication challenge but other than that it's it's a, a wonderful thing having people from all over the world engage with our work and, and actively participating so um, i think it's part of what keeps people around yeah i agree with you uh, multicultural teams do have the potential to make a collective process uh, richer and also more fulfilling and it doesn't sound too miserable to be staying at a tropical beach with nice weather for months at a time. Um, so for you personally, what life experiences led to your interest in coastal and marine issues? And what was the social climate like around environmental conservation when you started your career? So I grew up in central Florida, uh, in Orlando specifically. And as a youngster, I was very much into surfing. Uh, I, I still do it more today if I could, but I'm, you know, have much harder time getting over to the beach as often as I'd like to. But surfing was a big part of my life uh, in my early teen years and through high school and even uh, through much of college. So um, I've always felt like that 
sort of immersion in the marine environment that that happens when you spend that much time driving to the beach you know actually being in the water around the marine life there's something about that that just forms a, a bond a, um, a connection that you have with kind of the spirit of the ocean and and you're also able to see a lot of the marine life um, that you know makes our planet such a spectacular place and you know through my high school years Orlando in particular was just booming economically. Um, the uh, Disney, of course, was there already, but it, everything was exploding around that. The, uh, Universal Studios opened, all these attractions, and um, that caused the city to grow really quickly. And um, the, the drive from Orlando over to the beach is about a 45 to an hour minute drive. And when I was really young, that drive, almost as soon as you got east of Orlando, heading to the coast, you were kind of, you know, I won't call it wilderness, but at least it was mostly undeveloped land. You know, some forest, some farmland, but it was, um, you know, you, you were in the boonies, so to speak. And in a relatively short period of time, because of the explosion of, of growth in Orlando, I saw these places that were once green just disappearing before my eyes and you could kind of see the writing on the wall that um, you know our planet was changing rapidly that that, that special places um, could potentially be lost forever to development and um, it got me thinking a lot about the future the long-term future of uh, you know our planet and, and and especially these places that I cared so much about and, and the oceans and so by the time I got into college I was really thinking about wanting to do something to, to dedicate my life to trying to make a difference in the protection of the environment and um, you know that I think that's sort of what inspired me was that that time of my life and, and all of those experiences um, surfing and, and being at beaches and, and driving through areas that were being lost forever uh, to development and so you know this was when I was in school it was the very early 1980s and um, of course that you know the, the 1970s saw the the really um, the creation of an environmental movement in the United States you had the Endangered Species Act being adopted in the in the mid 70s so it wasn't a brand new thing, but it certainly was not uh, pervasive. Um, so much so that when I started, um, you know, talking to professors about what I wanted to do, um, you know, trying to get guidance on what kind of classes I could take to get into conservation, usually you are met with fairly blank stares. Um, there just was very little uh, out there in the way of you know, uh, professions that were related to conservation, uh, at least that I could find. You know, th there, of course there was biology and, and the study of the natural world. And I started, you know, down a path of, of being a biology major. And, and what I quickly learned, although I was fascinated with what I was learning, but I, I you could see that what you were really being taught was how to study uh, the science of the natural world, which is incredibly important. 
but that's different than changing things. Uh, it's 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 um, you know it's one thing to study and understand the world, but it's it's a very different thing to try to affect change. And so when I started looking at at what kinds of you know curriculum were out there for someone that wanted to to address conservation in the way that I saw myself doing it, I really couldn't find a solid path forward. Um, and so I kind of invented one. I started literally thinking critically about the kinds of tools I would need, the kinds of experiences and and abilities I would need in order to um, uh, achieve, you know, what I could envision at that time in my life as as real conservation impacts. And one of the things that that, that struck me was the uh, this notion of communications and the ability to take complex or abstract thoughts or information and convey that to, to different publics in order to reach people of different perspectives. Um, and so I started looking at the different types of, of communications majors that were out there um, uh, and, and ultimately landed in public relations a, as a, a specific focus of my, uh, my academic life. And um, that field, public relations, gave me a, a lot of the foundation for how you communicate in a way to be persuasive. Um, and now not knowing how that was going to work out for me, uh, as, you know, pursuing conservation as a career, I decided to get a, a second major in business to, to, you know, potentially fall back on. And as it happened, all of those business skills, accounting and marketing and, and management, those things have have um, turned out to be very valuable skills as well. Um, but anyway, just to, to, to sum it up, uh, you know, those experiences early in my life are, I think, some of the things that, that, that made me very much inspired to, to do what I could to, to protect the natural world uh, and, and marine environments in particular. And, um, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle to find uh, my path uh, in, in the 80s uh, to, to, to having a career in conservation. And um, I'm, I'm very lucky and thankful for the, that I met the right people along the way to, to help guide me and give me opportunities. And I try to give back that way today when I can. Um, there, there are many more avenues of, of, of study and, and um, uh, in the academic world for people that want to get involved in conservation as I did back then. So. Um, Anyway, I'm re really lucky the way things worked out, and, and I, uh, I'm so pleased when I hear that young people are, are looking at this kind of a, a career path for themselves. Wow, I really loved hearing about your surfing days. Um, that's great. And your formative years have Florida written all over it. I know it's a cliche, but still. Um, so this is interesting, what you were saying about having to create your own path to sort of um, match the purpose that you found. Um, and I feel like in a way you've got to apply every knowledge that you've acquired through your different studies and what you do nowadays. Um, and I, I find that you're in an interesting position where you speak not only the language of business, but also the language of science and even public policy. So would you say that this has expanded your ability to bring together people from different sectors? And if so, could you give us an example of it? I definitely think that my uh, sort of diverse academic background and, and the various experiences that I've had while working for the Sea Turtle Conservancy have helped me 
to not only do my job, but also bring together people from different backgrounds in order to uh, support the organization and, and support our cause. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of people think that I'm a scientist if I'm, you know, giving a presentation and I'm talking about some interesting aspect of sea turtle biology or something that the sea turtle, sea turtle conservancy has learned from, from some of our studies. Um, you know, I, I guess I can come across as, as knowledgeable enough to pass for a biologist. Um, I don't have all of the training of, of many of our great biologists, but I, I, I do know enough to communicate the kinds of things that the, the average person or, or uh, maybe a reporter or, or even an elected official may need to know in order to um, understand what we're trying to, to get them to do. Um, and I guess some good examples of me using these diverse backgrounds to, to achieve our mission. Um, uh, well, I can think of a good, uh, one good um, uh, uh, way that I have incorporated uh, my different skill sets is through our partnership with some of the different companies that we work with. Um, I, I speak enough of the language of business to, to know uh, with a lot of them kind of what they need in a relationship with an organization like STC. Um, you know, often they, they, they're, they're approaching a partnership with us from purely altruistic, you know, perspectives, and that's great. But usually there's a little bit of a bottom line um, goal for them. I mean, they want people to, they want their, their, their customers or prospective customers to understand that, that they care about the environment and they're doing things to give back. Um, uh, but when they uh, form an, uh, a partnership with, with STC, it also needs to make economic sense to them. And I understand that. And so I'm in a position to, um, to be able to try to do for them uh, things that, that make a relationship with us work, like utilizing our broad reach through social media um, to give them some kudos. Um, an example of that is there's this watch company in Switzerland, the Certina Watch Company. Um, they, they date back to the 1800s. Uh, it's a fairly high-end, you know, uh, Swiss-made uh, timepiece, nice, very nice watches. Um, they happen to have a, a turtle shell as their logo. And um, uh, I helped form a partnership with them and um, uh, have worked with them to uh, broaden their reach, introducing their, uh, their products, particularly their dive watches, to a lot of our, uh, our followers, and in turn have helped them develop some communication materials that help them uh, get the word out about the good things that they're doing for us. Um, I can think of, uh, you know, another good example is uh, relates to the whole story of the, the sea turtle license plate in Florida. Um, right now, if you own a vehicle, you know, a car in the state of Florida, you can choose to get a specialty license plate for a little extra money. Uh, I think it's like $25 extra a year to have a sea turtle tag. And uh, I personally, and you know, a, a, as an employee of our organization, uh, led the campaign to create that tag. And that was a two-year process of bringing together people of diverse backgrounds, 
to support it and ultimately get it passed by our legislature in Florida and then uh, to implement and promote the tag and have it become a success. And that ranged from working with small volunteer uh, turtle type organizations around Florida who you know I could communicate with and they could you know see the benefits of having a tag like that out there and, and the revenue it might generate. Uh, I had to work with members of the media to get that story out. Um, and then of course I had to uh, befriend and um, gain the support of a number of different legislators who have their own diverse uh, agendas to see the sea turtle tag as something that was was beneficial to Florida, uh, beneficial to the districts they represent, and beneficial to them as politicians. And so ultimately we were able to get the tag created uh, in the in the late 1990s. Um, today, the sea turtle license plate generates millions of dollars a year in revenue. Um, it, it fully funds the state's marine turtle protection program. That is a, a state agency's program to regulate turtles in Florida and, and a program that no longer relies on any tax dollars to exist. So it doesn't, it doesn't need appropriations from the legislature. It's the volunteer contributions from everyone who goes out and buys a sea turtle tag. Um, plus 30% uh, of the revenue from the turtle tag goes into a grants program that our organization administers and in that way we're able to give actually hundreds of thousands of dollars a year back to people working at the local level whether it's county governments um, educational or research institutions like universities or nonprofit organizations that are doing things for turtles uh, so something like that turtle tag, creating it, marketing it, and then ultimately uh, seeing it become a, the success that it is, um, required uh, bringing together uh, scientists and communicators and just passionate advocates and politicians uh, to get that done. And so I'm really proud of that kind of work and it definitely does um, benefit from you know, having a diverse background yourself. That's amazing. Um, and it shows that you can take something as abstract as caring for a sea turtle and turn it into something very tangible and that can effectively benefit every stakeholder involved. Now, NGOs are largely dependent on contributions to fund their initiatives, like you said. So in SDC, how do you guys make sure you make the best out of those contributions so that the people behind them are satisfied? Um, how did that play out with the, with the Florida specialty license plate, for example? It's always been really important to me and other people with the organization, uh, particularly our board members, uh, to make sure that the Sea Turtle Conservancy is always operating efficiently and um, transparently so that, that anyone or a company or a foundation that gives us money to support our work can see that that funding is going where it's supposed to go, that it's being handled and accounted for responsibly, and that essentially people are getting the biggest bang for their buck. Um, it, it's, it's absolutely critical that you do that sort of thing when you're applying for, for funding from foundations um, uh, or government sources. They want to know that your organization isn't really top-heavy and um, that you are uh, following all uh, appropriate accounting principles to, to track money. Uh, so we maintain a full-time accountant 
whose sole job is to track every penny that comes into the organization, um, how it's spent, and, and particularly if money is given for a, a particular cause uh, or program, we call that restricted money, and it can only be spent on that particular activity. Um, and, and, and we track that and, and can report on that to, to foundations or whoever the donor might be. Um, it's also really important that when people look at your overall finances, they see that you're not uh, spending uh, too much on either uh, administration or fundraising. Uh, because of course, neither one of those activities directly helps turtles. So the Sea Turtle Conservancy always tries to maintain and always does maintain uh, very low overhead costs, as they call it. And um, it's one of the reasons that we um, consistently receive a, a four-star rating by Charity Navigator, which is a, an independent evaluator of, of nonprofits. And uh, it's, it's one of the reasons I think a lot of the foundations that have supported us for, for decades continue to do so because they, they know and trust that their money is being used wisely. So let's talk a little bit about philanthropy. What you were saying um, with the Florida specialty license plate that people give an extra uh, $25 um, and that goes for sea turtle conservation. Um, that in its way, it's philanthropy. You know, it doesn't have to be millions and millions of dollars. Um, and behind a lot of NGOs, there are great philanthropic spirits. Um, I, th I see that in the United States in particular, it has played a major role in your country's progress in different areas. So how do you think NGOs and countries where philanthropy hasn't been much of a tradition spark interest in this type of work um, based on what you've seen with SDC? I think you're asking a, a really important question. Um, and th there are no easy answers that I can see. The, uh, the Sea Turtle Conservancy has had a really strong presence in, uh, in Costa Rica, specifically, for the last 60 years, doing really good work on behalf of sea turtles and, we believe, the country and its citizens, because, of course, we're trying to protect a resource that is uh, very unique to Costa Rica and also very important to the local economy. The, the importance of ecotourism is, is well known in Costa Rica and in Tortuguero specifically, it's, it's the leading employer by far. So the work STC as a non-governmental organization does is has a tremendous public value and return on investment. And yet, uh, in all these years, these decades, uh, despite reaching out to businesses and, and, and uh, and individuals for financial support, it, it really does, uh, uh, I'm sad to say, dwarf the kind of support that we get from uh, uh, citizens and, and uh, companies in the United States. Uh, even individuals who live in the interior of the country and, and aren't, don't live around or ever see sea turtles, yet their, their philanthropic spirit causes them to want to do something to help. So, so how do other NGOs, especially those that are based in, uh, in places like Costa Rica, where um, philanthropy doesn't have uh, quite as much history as it does you know, in the US, how do they um, um, reach people and inspire them to, 
to actually donate to a cause. And, you know, that is just a really tricky thing to understand what the differences in motivation are um, uh, between cultures. Um, there certainly are people who are very philanthropic minded in Costa Rica. We have people come through our visitor center uh, every day and, and uh, make donations or buy things, maybe spending a little extra more on a product that we're selling because they know that it's supporting our cause. Um, but I think it, it's kind of a, you know, just a, a, a perspective about your role as a citizen and, versus, um, you know, government's role. Uh, I think we have to appeal to people to see that not, not only are there actions you can do uh, to help the environment, but you know, putting your, your money where your mouth is, is, is a valuable part of that process. Um, you know, it, 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 I think, uh, um, you know, it's just something that you can't give up on. You need to keep educating people and giving them opportunities to contribute. And, uh, and hopefully the, the right messaging will, um, will, will finally make that something that, that everybody does on a regular basis. But uh, I don't have easy answers to that one and certainly recognize it as one of the challenges that, that, that we and, and other nonprofits face uh, working in different countries. Yes, you're right. And it can go as deep as wondering about what people's motivations are. Um, but it's definitely about communicating value and purpose and channeling that to people that, you know, are willing to help. Um, do you have any last thoughts on, on the role that NGOs in general have looking at where the world is going and what new things we are prioritizing since they're um, such a platform for positive change? And finally, I cannot let you go without asking if you have a favorite sea turtle species. I think NGOs really play a critical role in, in society as a whole. Uh, if you think about it, there are really three main types of institutions, uh, with NGOs, non-governmental organizations being one, um, corporations or businesses being the other, and government itself. And of course, corporations by and large are in the business of making money. You know, they're designed to uh, offer a product or a service um, that, that, that turns a profit. That's their agenda. And um, that's not necessarily an agenda that um, is, is out to improve the world or, or address uh, problems or or protect the environment um, uh, you know many many businesses do that as a, as a sidebar but it's not the main purpose uh, government is even more complex um, you know they're they're uh, implementing laws taking care of the citizenry uh, dealing with health issues like the the coronavirus pandemic um, but it's very difficult for for government to remain focused on uh, particular issues um, for the long term, you know, because the, the interests of the electorate changes and they and, and government must change to respond to the to the needs of the day. Um, with non-governmental organizations like Sea Turtle Conservancy, for example, 
we've had this single-minded, dedicated focus on sea turtles for 60 years and counting. Uh, and and, and our, our view is always evolving to deal with the latest threats, but the goal remains the same. Um, what can we do as an organization, which is this, this group of citizens and supporters, to uh, um, safeguard, uh, study, protect, and raise awareness about this particular class of animal? And the same goes for any other NGO. They have their dedicated mission that they can remain focused on. And there's always going to be a need for that in society. Um, so I think that, that NGOs do play this critical role of uh, allowing uh, an outlet for citizens to come together, form organizations, uh, and work towards like-minded goals that are really important to them. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud to uh, really have spent my entire professional career in the non-governmental world and and uh, and hopefully have, have made the world a better place. Um, in your final question, I know you're asking me uh, about the uh, my favorite sea turtle species. Uh, well, I don't know that I have a favorite species. Uh, you know, I work enough with sea turtles to to know really unique biological facts about each one of the species and, and, and different things about their eating habits or their migratory habits or where they may nest. And they're all fascinating to me. Um, I guess if I had to choose one to single out, I, I would mention the leatherback just because it is such a monstrous animal that so clearly um, um, reflects its, uh, its ancient um, existence. I mean, th this species has been around for well over a hundred million years. It just looks like you're in the presence of a dinosaur when you're when you're next to a, a leatherback on the beach. And in reality, you are. I mean, it is a living dinosaur. Um, so th they they to me uh, kind of capture a lot of what is so special about sea turtles. They're beautiful. They're long lived. They migrate thousands of miles, um, and they're ancient. Um, really a testament to survivorship, and um, I, I find that very inspirational. Hmm, we should respect leatherback turtles. Um, they've seen a lot more than we have, and every sea turtle for that matter. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you very much. It's, it's been my pleasure. Listen to Visiting Fellows, Episode 2, Leading an NGO with Mr. David Godfrey, Executive Director at Sea Turtle Conservancy. You can follow us on Instagram at Visiting Fellows and feel free to give us feedback. You can also follow Sea Turtle Conservancy's account at Conserve Turtles. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and see you next time.